Welcome to our event this evening. Um, we are here to think about how to create more and better jobs in a post-pandemic labour market, just days before the local and Scottish parliamentary elections on Thursday. Um, I must admit, the topic of jobs isn't necessarily front of mind in the uh, Westminster bubble, where the kind of number 10 flat redecoration saga rumbles on, but we're going to talk about issues of substance, which I'm sure matter to people on the doorstep. We're webcasting this session on our YouTube, Facebook and Twitter channels. So hello to everyone following us out there. If that's you, please tweet your questions and comments via at Centre Pro Policy using the hashtag, hashtag CPP jobs or join our Facebook Live. Those of you joining here on Zoom can ask questions via the Q&A function and I'll do my best to feed them through uh, during the second part of the event. With us today, we have Professor Diane Coyle from the Bennett Institute for Public Policy, Martin van der Weyer, a business editor of The Spectator, and Anna Thomas, who is director of the Institute for Future Work. Um, this event is uh, coming at a time where we're over 12 months on from the uh, first COVID lockdown, where we saw a massive shift in the role and expectation of the size of the state with the kind of flagship furlough scheme holding up uh, the uh, holding up the labour market. Since then, um, I think the conversation has thankfully, if I may say so, shifted from whether and when we're going to be going back to our offices to address some much bigger, more interesting and more fundamental questions about the nature of work and how that might be changing, what that means for business and how business are investing, what that means in terms of the quality of jobs and, and how people's sort of lived experience, as it were, of being in work, and what that all means for the economy and the extent to which we can create inclusive economic growth, which, of course, at the Centre for Progressive Policy, we're really interested in. Uh, one of my concerns is that we won't learn the lessons from the last recession and that instead of thinking about how we create more and better jobs and get people into those higher quality jobs, we as a government, we start to push people just into any job as the fear of unemployment continues to grip. There's some evidence that government's really starting to put its muscle behind the role of skills retraining and the rest um, with the FE white paper being a positive indication of its commitment there. But at CPP, we think it's really kind of missed the boat and could have spent the last 12 or so months during the furlough scheme to, to get ahead of that rather than relying on kind of last minute uh, efforts to, um, to push the skills agenda. There's also a question about how much money will really go into FE and other parts of the skills uh, system. And we won't see that until the comprehensive spending review. So still a lot of big policy decisions to um, set out and we'll be discussing those with our experts today. Um, to kick us off, I'll hand over to Professor Diane Poyle. Diane, as you will know, is um, a leading economist and runs her own Enlightenment Economist, if I've got that right, Diane, um, uh, uh, consultancy and has been um, really at the forefront of thinking about these issues, including through the Migration Advisory Committee for many years. So I'll hand over to Diane. Thanks very much, Charlotte, and good evening, everybody. Um, real pleasure to have this opportunity to talk to you. Um, so jobs follow economic growth and productivity. And let me say at the start that that economic growth has to be sustainable and we should be accounting for the impacts of 
uh, on climate and biodiversity. But that's, that's what I'm going to say about sustainability. I'm going to take it as read and focus on the labour market questions. And as Charlotte was just saying, we're going to go into a period where the furlough scheme will be phased out, business support will be unwound. And it's not yet clear what's going to happen to the economy overall or the level of unemployment. I'm not somebody who believes that we're bound to have a roaring 2020s as a result. That will happen in pockets for sure. But the inequalities in our society had become really unsustainable before the pandemic and, and, and now they've got worse. So this debate about employment and growth overlaps completely, in my view, with the levelling up question, because people tend to stay near where they grow up. Most people aren't very mobile. And even if they were, the whole country couldn't move to London. So we need growth and we need jobs absolutely everywhere. In the debate about growth and productivity, um, there's a, an inclination to focus either on some sectors that we know are important, pharmaceuticals comes to mind at the moment for obvious reasons, uh, green technologies and so on. And the, the high-tech exciting frontier is important, but most people aren't going to work there. Most people work in what you might call the ordinary economy. And so the question is, how do we get that to grow? How do we get uh, jobs to be created there? And um, how do we ensure that they are going to be high quality jobs, which enable people to have the incomes that will enable them to spend and keep and sustain, um, sustain economic growth. The one thing that is uh, needed in my view is the public sector needing to grow again around the country and moving some civil servants out of Whitehall to other towns around the UK isn't enough. It's, it's the everyday public sector jobs those public services that have been hollowed out cut to the bone in many places and often cut in the same places. So what you might call a left behind town might be a place where the local um, hospital closed or had uh, activities transferred to a specialist centre for very good reasons, because there are better health outcomes associated with specialisation. But the magistrates court closed, the police station got rationalised. Um, the leisure centre has, has been cut down and the footprint of those steady jobs has shrunk and often in very, very geographically concentrated ways. And where that shrinks, the private sector shrinks as well, because all of those support services, um, cafes and bookshops and um, greengrocers that develop around clusters of activity have been shrinking as well. So. Services need restoring both to deliver services and to create that core of, of a steady employment around the country. And actually, I think there should be a minimum offer for public services everywhere uh, in terms of standards. Obviously, there are schools and access to healthcare everywhere. We need to make sure that they're high enough quality. It's a key element of equality of opportunity. But it's not all about the public sector, obviously. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the need for minimum standards in other kinds of jobs. There was somebody whose name I didn't catch from Uber on the radio this morning pointing out that Uber drivers now, because of the recent court decision, have access to uh, minimum wage and pensions uh, in a way that they didn't before. Uh, but other minicab drivers don't. And there now have been a number of court decisions against um, Uber 
which makes us focus on the gig employment model and think of it as a digital platform issue. Actually, a lot of people across the whole economy work in these contingent ways, in taxi services, in hospitality, in gyms, in hairdressers. And in a recent piece of work I did with Abby and Jeremiah Adams Prassel at Oxford, we tried to um, add up the proportion of the workforce in these kinds of contingent arrangements. And it isn't easy to do because the official measures don't ask the question in the way that you would want as an economic researcher. But if you look at zero hours contracts, fixed term contracts, um, uh, platform work and so on, it adds up to about 23% of the UK workforce, which is really a surprisingly high number. It's not just about digital. And although there have been a few court cases that enforce standards uh, and they're very high profile, there hasn't been the same attention focused on um, the people who um, rent space in a gym or the people who are working for a regular minicab company. And uh, anyway, to have quality, the quality of work sustained and conditions of work sustained by court cases isn't very satisfactory. We have plenty of labour standards legislation in the minimum wage. It's a question of enforcement, really. And this uh, seems to me a key issue, terribly unfashionable. You don't get headlines for announcing that you're going to enforce things that you're supposed to be enforcing anyway. But it matters because um, people are insecure. These are often low, low wage jobs, so they don't have savings. Um, they're not in pension schemes, so this will come back to bite the public um, uh, support for pensions in the future. And also importantly for long-term productivity and growth, they're low productivity because people working in contingent ways um, don't invest in equipment, don't invest in their skills and training in the same way that they would if they were working for an employer. It also, by the way, reduces the tax base because people working as a solo self-employed person are much more likely not to be paying VAT. Whereas if it operates through a company, they, uh, the VAT receipts would be there. I don't think we should give up on flexibility. It's got many benefits, but it's one-sided and it needs to suit both the worker and the employer. And we need to think about how to deliver security and incentives to develop skills and safer pensions that are not all delivered through employers. Because I think given where we are, and the benefits of flexibility, that's, that's going to stay with us. But um, uh, in the 1960s, John Kenneth Galbraith came up with this phrase, private affluence and public squalor. And I think in a sense, although there's hyperbole in that, it's actually much worse. These inequalities are really very entrenched. And so my final comment would be that I think we've got to value the ordinary. And part of the payoff of valuing the ordinary will actually be making optimism possible. And without that sense of shared optimism, we're never going to get growth in the economy and, um, and investment in our futures, which is absolutely fundamental. And I hope having mentioned investment, that's a good segue to Martin. Thank you very much. Wonderful, Diane, thanks so much. Um, I think CPP would um, sit behind a lot of those um, ideas and some of those policy recommendations, particularly around how we think about labour market enforcement. But I think I'd be interested in, in Martin's view, you know, particularly as I could hear potential employers saying, well, 
you know, you'll if, if the tighter you kind of turn the enforcement screw, the greater the risk to the jobs that we can create and provide and, and all the rest. Martin, what are your reflections on Diane's comments and then, you know, wider thoughts on, on the issues we're talking about today? Uh, thank you, Charlotte. And uh, it's very nice to be with you for this seminar, particularly nice to reconnect with Diane, who's an old friend. Um, I'm not a technical economist. I'm a journalist. I'm a columnist in The Spectator, as you said, and I'm a sort of anecdotal observer. I'm speaking to you from North Yorkshire, and I have a particular view of circumstances in the north of England, in its big cities, uh, that informs my view. So what do I think about how we create more and better jobs and is there a conflict between the more and the better is a kind of interesting question we had a we went through a long phase before the pandemic crisis in which the uk economy was actually creating more jobs or more jobs than many economists might have expected but we gradually realized that the more jobs were not better jobs on the whole they were gig economy jobs they were barista and hospitality low paid jobs they were they were very insecure but they did keep a very large number of people in work um and at a time of recovery when we are clearly going to see us a, a spike uh in the short to medium term in unemployment as furlough comes off i think first of all we shouldn't um we should value the ordinary <laughs> to use diane's phrase in the sense we shouldn't turn our noses up at a sudden resurgence of those kind of jobs. I, looking at Rishi Sunak's speech uh, about the government's plan for jobs, there was a phrase in there about nobility of work. Well, you might say, well, that's political hot air, isn't it? But there is a certain nobility of work. And I think back to the um, recovery phase in the early 90s, 93, 94, um, I, I remember writing a cover piece for The Spectator about the concept of Mac jobs. That was the idea that a very large number of people in the in the United States and then increasingly here, their first job was in McDonald's flipping burgers. And was that a good thing or a bad thing? And on balance, you could say, actually, it's a rather good thing. It put people into work. It taught them disciplines of work. If McDonald's was a fair employer, that was okay. If they had the ability and, and drive, they would go on to better things. So first of all, if there's a resurgence of kind of low-level jobs, even rather insecure gig economy work in the recovery phrase, we shouldn't... Uh, discourage it or look down upon it. It is uh, work and work is better than not work. But better jobs, what are better jobs? Well, better jobs are more secure, more sustainable, more skilled, um, going up the ladder of employment, as it were. And how do we get to that? Well, I agree with Diane when she said it's not all about the public sector. I think I would say it's a lot less about the public sector indeed than, than, than she was indicating it's not, for instance, about shifting civil servants' jobs to the, you know, red wall seats to the north of England. Um, there are side effects of doing that, you know, property prices in Darlington are going up because the treasuries are rising, are, uh, arriving. And, uh, an entrepreneur in uh, up in the northeast was telling me the other day he finds it difficult to recruit 
skilled software people, because a lot of skilled software people have left recently who were EU citizens, and up in his area, the DHSS and the DWP are competing in the employment market to hire the best software people. So the entrepreneurs are having to scramble around, pay up to get more of them. So I don't think it's about just token shifting of public sector jobs around the country at all. I think it is about, essentially, it's about skills. Uh, it's about provision of transport links, about broadband links, um, and so on. Andy Haldane's paper about Ashington is, is a brilliant analysis of all of that. And how do you attract business investment? It's the skilled workforce. It's the, it's the international transport links. Well, they're all disrupted at the moment. It's been thrown into some, you know, disarray by, by Brexit. I'm not a you know, I was a, I work for the Spectator, but I'm not a Brexiteer by anybody's measure, and I think that has been a great setback towards inward investment, but business investment generally. Um, very important thing is to encourage entrepreneurship, really, to make the best circumstances for existing entrepreneurs who want to grow their businesses, also for young people who want to start businesses. They need. Um, the sort of support that the, you know, things like the Prince's Trust can give them, for example, but also all the uh, help in terms of business rate relief, workspace availability, and so on, that government can help to provide. But I think entrepreneurship is going to drive us out of this crisis and will gradually create good quality jobs. And that may be more so than inward investment. We're not going to get new car factories um, in the next phase. We're not going to get new aerospace factories. But um, we do have those industries. We do need to nurture those industries. Skills training is absolutely central to all of this. And I think the way Charlotte put it, there is an awful lot of catching up to do in that area. And that's the thing the government could, could do best of all. And then just make circumstances in which entrepreneur led businesses and existing businesses with pent-up capital waiting to invest are prepared to do more. Um, so I'll, I'll pause there. Why not? Fantastic. Thanks so much, Martin. So I'm going to hand over to Anna, and I think there's lots of food for thought given the areas of work that you're focused on there, both from Diane and from Martin. So take it away, Anna. Um, thank you very much, uh, Charlotte, for having me for this really important discussion. It's a point where clarity of about outcome and priorities and pathways um, for uh, levelling up um, and inclusive growth are becoming quite pressing. Um, so at the Institute for the Future of Work, we believe that the best route to levelling up and inclusive growth um, is probably a focus on making work better and fairer. Um, and this, we think, is the best way to align different interests and connect between departments and different levels of government, too. And so I hope to explain a little bit more and talk about that um, in the next five minutes, building on um, excellent presentations from Diane and Martin and cutting where there's an overlap and the point has already been uh, said. 
Um, so our, our work finds disparities um, in access to good work and resilience and that they're becoming more and more prevalent across the country. We've done two pieces of work, a global labour resilience index and a good work monitor in this area. And when I get a moment, a second in a moment, I'll put those in the chat so you can have a look at them um, as we speak. So starting, first of all, about good work and, and, and work quality, um, we assess and think about that at the Institute by reference to a good work charter and that see better jobs as really good jobs by reference to 10 principles in the charter, which do include, Martin, the things that you were identifying, training and, and fair pay and terms and conditions, of course, but also include uh, perhaps softer aspects such as dignity and autonomy at work. Um, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll add that to my list of things to put in the chat. Um, so our, uh, our Labour Resilience Index, which we did with White Shield Partners, Oxford Said Business School um, uh, and Oxford Said Business School, um, offers an international perspective um, on this. It finds that the UK ranks well below um, other GLRI resilience leaders on quality of earnings, we're only at 22nd, and quality of working environment too, we're only at 36th. Um, among OECD comparator countries. So this is shaped in the UK by job insecurity, by higher uh, levels of mar labour market polarisation and declining vocational education and training, all really important areas of access to good work. And picking up on that training point that Martin, Martin rightly emphasised, um, the prevalence of employer-provided training has fallen in recent years. Um, the CPP have done some excellent work on this too, I think, um, with Brexit leading firms to cut back on training expenditures um, to adjust to other increased cost pressures. And so those with fewer formal uh, qualifications are also least likely to receive in-work training, and this creates a vicious cycle whereby workers are trapped in low-wage, low-skill job cycles. Um, and that, among other things, explains uh, the lack of confidence we've seen in repeated surveys about investments in people. Um, it's also likely to be linked to lack of uh, innovation or narrow types of innovation, and I'll come to back to that later. The UK ranks 10th for labour market flexibility um, among its peers, um, but we do have to ask flexibility for whom and our qualitative work, which accompanies the index, which is in-house, suggests that in the UK this may serve the interests of employers uh, more than it should. Um, so our interviews through the panic, pandemic uh, find an increased use of digital tools to aid recruitment and management. Uh, greater use of algorithmic management can present new opportunities and incentives for firms to increase the flexibility of their labour force, what we call the liquidisation uh, of the workforce, uh, mostly against the disadvantage of workers we're finding at the moment who have increased risk and responsibility put upon them. And Diane's paper, I think, on the Uber case makes that point too. So as far as we can tell, part-time workers on an involuntary basis represent 5% of the active population, could well be more, but we know it's about five. And that's the fifth highest share among OECD counterparts. Um, plus, we're finding that the basic floor of protection is lower than OECD competitors, and that this is holding the UK back in terms of resilience to shocks, different types of resilience uh, to shocks. 
And the UK is also performing below other GLR top performers in the cost spend and effectiveness of active labour market policies. So basically, these, these things sit underneath headline uh, indicators, which give a sunnier picture. In terms of regional disparities, um, national results also do hide the notably higher levels of inequality than most of its uh, counterparts, both within and between regions. And the UK is the fourth most unequal uh, country on the labour resilience uh, indicators um, uh, in the top 20 after the US and Canada and Luxembourg. So this we know, and the extent of the interconnectedness of different types of inequality um, has been highlighted through the pandemic. The Good Work Monitor reveals the stark differences between the, in the availability of good work prior to the pandemic at a local authority level, and eight of the top uh, performing local authorities are in the southeast of England, um, joined only by the affluent area of Trafford in Manchester, and Rutland, the smallest uh, unitary authority in England uh, by population. Um, uh, to bring a human dimension or example to this, the availability of good work shapes individual ability to reject or decline standards of a poor work. So we spoke to two retail workers, one in London and one in Grimsby. And while the London retail worker told us she saw significant staff turnover, with many staff seeing work in her store as a temporary stopgap and undesirable career, the young woman we spoke to in Grimsby reported that any guaranteed hours contract uh, within the, the supermarket that she was working with was seen as a highly competitive job. Um, so this is a reminder of the vicious circle mentioned, whereby local places characterised by bad work beget a further bad work, which is the cycle uh, that we need uh, to break. There are, th there are three angles uh, on the con more conventional uh, regional levelling up story, which I'd like to pull out. Um, firstly, and if you could just do in, in very short time, because I, I want to come to the panel um, debate a little bit, if we could just... Yeah, yes, absolutely. Along. Thank you. I'll miss that big and uh, go straight to points about innovation, which I know you want three points and leave the wrap up ones. Um, so three points on innovation. So we do need uh, to promote innovation um, and, and equality in the economic mix of activities um, across the country. And we've measured that by, by business startup rates um, in the Good Work Monitor. Um, another angle is that we need diversity. So research, not our own research from the LSE, shows that promoting equality at work would expose children and more families to the factors that drive innovation. So quadrupling the number uh, of innovators. Um, and lastly, we found in research, which is going to be published in May, um, that technology is being deployed and, uh, and uh, in ways which, which intensify work. So the focus is on the intensification of labour units in existing work rather than real innovation um, uh, as, we, as we see it. And shall I hand back to you then? Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Um, some really thought-provoking um, remarks from everyone. I've, I've got a few questions to come back before we go to our audience. Um, Diane, one of the things that we're um, talking to policymakers a lot at the moment is how um, these labour market um, changes and the sort of precarious nature of um, the labour market increasingly affects certain types of uh, people in the you know, women disproportionately affected by um, COVID and older people um, can often uh, struggle to get access to the kind of retraining and, and upskilling uh, 
um, that they need to be able to transition into a new line of work potentially. Do you have any kind of insights on what you'd be advising government on you know, particular groups within the labour market that might be disproportionately affected by the inequalities that you outlined? The ones who seem to be um, least happy about their, um, quote, flexible status, who, who are least content to work like that and would like more solid permanent jobs. It's actually um, uh, white males, young males with few skills. So I think it's a skills problem. I mean, obviously the pandemic has, uh, there's evidence it's hit women particularly hard and um, parents generally, but at longer term, I think it's that same group that has been troubling people in education and how to, um, you know, effectively put people um, on a path to being able to upskill and therefore get the kinds of jobs for which there's, um, you know, the excess demand that Martin was referring to is is quite a challenge and nobody's cracked that yet. Um, I'm sure it's partly to do with schools, but also FE, which, as um, you said right at the start, is getting a little bit more attention now, which is a good thing. Um, one of the areas that I would like to see devolved more locally is actually um, FE and skills policy, because the um, granularity of information that you need to know about opportunities in the local labour market, it really takes people on the ground to understand that. And you can't talk in categories like electrician because the kinds of electrician needed in particular types of firms and sectors that differs very widely. So I'd like to see not only more money put into FE and um, more attention paid to it, also more stability policy, which has been very changeable. There's that fantastic IFG report showed a few years ago, but also that we um, actually find out what, where the gaps are and what skills are needed in the labour market, which we can only do much more locally. Fantastic. Thank you. And, and Martin, the COVID Recovery Commission, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, launched, I think, last week. Ten, ten don't worry, ten business leaders, you know, Shell and Tesco's and the like, came out and said, this is what we think we need to do um, if we are going to build back better. Um, one of the things that they talk about was localization of um, recovery plans and, you know, skills have, has to be central to that, we would argue, um, at the, at the centre here. Um, but they also talk about having a kind of concerted, you would call it industrial strategy for those industries in which we are currently most competitive. What are your thoughts on that? Um, sort of particularly in light of the fact that the current government has actually moved away from thinking in terms of industrial strategy. Does that help us here? Uh, I suppose it doesn't help that we've never really had a government that's, ha that's had a, a useful industrial strategy in, in living memory, have we? But we do have some, some very strong industries, uh, in particular sort of uh, advanced engineering, pharmaceutical automotive and aerospace I mentioned and there are opportunities so I said I don't think we'll get any more you know uh, Japanese owned car factories coming into this country on the other hand if we're really at the cutting edge of the electrification of the automotive industry in in battery technology um, in even driverless car technology all the new technologies of transport then we have a chance of preserving those industries now um, 
how does the government do that? It, it, you know, it doesn't do anything to to diminish the strength of our university sector, for example. But thinking of what Diane was just saying and so on, one of the things I think we could do with as a, after the pandemic is a sort of reappraisal. Really, a lot of kids have not had a year's experience at university where, in fact, they might well have been studying something that wasn't going to get them a job anyway. So there may be a realization <laughs> that, that uh, there's a, a slice of the higher education sector which is pretty unproductive. And that the further education sector, whether it's the electrician, whether it's the, the decorator who's going to put the wallpaper up in Downing Street, um, whether it's all sorts of skills that are now going to be needed to transform town and city centres um, in the new world, the new sort of semi-working from home world, uh, the greener world where people don't want to commute uh, and so on. There's an enormous opportunity arising. We don't know how it's going to play out. It's more of an entrepreneur opportunity, I think, to transform city centres. How do we make all the skills you need for that well that's probably in the fe sector if the government has any input to it so sorry that's a rambling answer to the question you threw at me but but those are my thoughts there fantastic thanks and actually cpp research found a few years ago that about a hundred thousand graduates each year would have been better off not going to university and studying a further technical education instead in terms of you know the, the salary opportunities that would come from that and we still um, know that, but I think perhaps that will come into focus. You know, we've known that for ages, just nobody mm. was prepared to do anything about it. Well, now is a good moment, actually. Skills. I think it, I, the other participants may know more about this than me, but we have just lost, I believe, a chunk of our skilled younger population, which is the EU migrants who left the UK and gone back to their home countries. Therefore, there should be vacancies in those areas, but we don't have the trained people coming out of our education system to take up those jobs. So actually, the smartest entrepreneurs are saying, well, I can hire a software coder in Lithuania or Mexico to do this work. We just do it online. Um, you know, we need to get ahead of that, don't we? Can I respond very quickly to Martin? So you would expect me not to be a fan of university bashing and, and, and the culture war against universities that's going yeah, on. But <laughs> we, do, we do have, we've um, undervalued mid-level technical skills and, the, and there are real skill shortages. And that's why, to link it back to your question, Charlotte, I, I don't care if you call it an industrial strategy, but having a strategy, having some long-term aims and not having a policy seesaw all the time, having some kind of consensus among the parties about which are the industries that are going to grow and what are the skills left all the way down, up and down the skills ladder that are needed there. I would um, love us to have a strategy. Fantastic, thank you. And, and Anna, finally, um, in my introduction, I, I referred back to the lessons we hope we've learned from the 08 recession. If you were to say one thing to, um, you know, Boris and, and Rishi Sunak and others, how would, what would you be advising them so we don't, build that worse because <laughs> I think there's a lot of risks that we've talked about collectively here um, how would you try and mitigate some of those 
Um, yes, and it's very hard to fish out just one one thing to say. Um, we have been, so, so I might stretch that very slightly. We're saying that there should be an overarching sort of strategy, which we're calling Work 5.0. It's like a UK up-to-date version um, of, you know, drawing on Germany's um, uh, um, industry at 4.0, um, and that takes a very wide lens view of both work and the conditions needed for work. And that within that, it should cover all manner of things, um, both uh, touched on by Diane and Martin, as well as me um, and yourself, Charlotte, um, but that it should cover high, higher levels of devolution um, and that place matters really hugely, not just in terms of inequalities, but in terms of local policy response. And that we've seen through the pandemic, local initiatives filling uh, national policy gaps I can give plenty of examples, um, such as the Manchester Technology Fund, um, and that and that is what we have. What I think that is the biggest message at this at this point in time, that uh, uh, that that we really have to look at um, higher levels of devolution within this Work Five Point Zero strategy, uh, which is future focused. Well, if I can turn now to our audience questions. Um, one of the questions from Laura Jane Rawlings, thank you, Laura, is um, do you see the DWP and Plan for Jobs youth hubs being able to play a role at a local level? Um, Anna, maybe you could touch on that if you're familiar with those youth hubs idea. Um, I would I, I would I would defer to Diane for that. <laughs> but yes, I do. I mean, I do. It, it may it, it, it in a broad terms. It, it, it's um, it's absolutely right that local youth hubs combined with other local um, actors um, ought to be playing a, um, a more prominent and better funded role in identifying local needs um, and matching people to those to those needs uh, to help those uh, in transition and knowing that we have a massive skills mismatch in the UK. Diane, did you want to add anything? I don't know what youth hubs are. I like the word local, obviously, uh, and we've been talking about this matching issue. Um, and we, we owe young people big time. They've um, been, in effect, subsidising all kinds of goodies for the elderly for um, some time, and what a year they've had, and actually how good most of them have been. And um, there will be the kind of re-evaluation re Martin talked about, um, but I think many young people will have paid a tremendous cost in this past 15 months and we owe them. Well, another question from Laura Jane was around the role of apprenticeships. And we've seen apprenticeship numbers really drop off, um, particularly in the last year, but before the pandemic hit as well. What role do we think that apprenticeships play in tackling the skills questions that we've raised this evening? And how could that potentially be linked to not just um, quality jobs per se, but in thinking about the role that business sees for themselves in kind of forging um, a more, you know, prosperous, productive Britain? Martin, maybe I could come to you on from the kind of big business employer perspective on that. Yeah, well... Um... Going back to the last question, the very phrase, and I mean, in a spectatorish sort of way, the very phrase DWP youth hubs, sort of my heart sinks um, at the very thought of that. On the other hand, apprenticeships, um, sandwich courses, anything that puts young people into real work, I mean, okay, 
could be public, could be private sector, what I'm talking about here, in, into real business situations, actually not working from home, but back in an office, in a workplace, in a workshop for the experience of work is, is very high value. So I think um, a lot of forms of apprenticeships are, as I say, worth considerably more than um, years spent in rather unproductive lower end of higher education as it were so so all of that is good and i think if you could take the 100 best most successful entrepreneurs across a range of industries in this uk and say say would each of you please come up with a scheme that will take in 20 50 100 kids between the age of 18 and 25 and give them a real work experience for a year in this recovery phase that would be vastly more useful than some big public sector-driven concocted uh, thing with a with a fancy label on it. Um, Martin, I, I totally take your point on that, and I think we can point to various kind of failed attempts to do just that. But one of the things that I've been struck by when I've been to different places and, and held roundtables, say with you know local leaders and representatives from LAPS and and other. Um, firms is that you know many of them will be doing just that and each trying their best but nothing adds up to anything that's systemic that leads to systemic change that tries that sort of is really manages to make a breakthrough and I wonder that's if that's because there are only so many good employers in inverted commas or or whatever they what else the the other barriers to that might be so um, I don't know if you've got any Thoughts and how we really push it out. Employers with their backs to the wall right now, you know, who are going to struggle to come through. I I am a bit more of a sort of roaring 20s recovery person than Diane is, but there are many, many businesses that don't have the resources, uh, the capacity to to do altruistic schemes like this. So, you know, the government would have to find a way to, to fund some of it or pick the ones that are in the better positions to do it. But again, what it, what, some employers will say to you is we'd love to do that if the people you send us have the motivation and the basic stem skills and so on from their uh, school days to to make it worthwhile the, the our worry is that the quality of kids that were coming out of the education system uh, and the level of their enthusiasm and motivation was too poor so for years we've simply been taking on the, the migrants who were keener to work and brought skills with them. And I'm sorry if that sounds a bit stereotyping, but but that I, I have a, a particular example, which I won't name in mind, of someone who tried a scheme and it didn't work uh, for that, those very reasons. Well, I think there's something wrong. I think there must be something wrong with, it, with how the scheme operates here because many countries have success, successful apprenticeship programs. Um, employers in the UK warned the government that the incentives for them uh, were not very strong in the scheme. And I don't understand why there's such a resistance to tweaking it. There's also, of course, quite a lot of informal apprenticeships, particularly in small companies. They don't call it that. But they will, they will take on a youngster and train them up. Um, could one of the, the potential barriers to, to this, and sort of, or the, at least the drivers to some of those um, behaviours that you were talking about, Martin, and a question from Freddie Kellett in the audience, about the role of minimum wage. And I think his question, correct me if I'm wrong, Freddie, refers to whether it's not it's not just a flaw, but has become in the age of precarious work. 
um, a ceiling for some employers and, and a ceiling that not all of them necessarily even meet. Does that kind of hold down aspiration if kind of a minimum wage job where you've got no guarantee of hours is the kind of best you can hope for in a particular place? Does that feed into the kind of, you know, patterns that we're seeing, Martin, of, of the kind you'd describe? Well, that sounds more like a question for Anna than for me. But um, the first thing to say is many people on the sort of on the right of the spectrum of economics were very dubious about min- introducing a minimum wage long ago when it was introduced. They thought it would damage um, employment and be bad for businesses. It turned out not to be. The world, you know, the business world adjusted to it. I think it's it's a useful indicator. I don't think it's a damaging thing, and I don't think it's it's a ceiling particularly. Um, I think it has it has worked pretty well. The worry is that there's an informal economy. A sort of you know what you might a sweatshop economy, and there's the gig economy, which have evolved, grown like mushrooms to get around the minimum wage, and that's that's an area where regulation is already in play, but needs to be more in play. But I I defer to Anna really on that one. Anna, your thoughts? Um, well, I think I think Master, that's absolutely right that it has it has in fact not act. We all you know that there was worry that it might act as a ceiling um, or an obstacle, and that that has not been borne out um, by research mostly, and that also that it's enforcement um, of the minimum wage that's the real problem, which circles back to uh, Diane's paper on, on Uber, which you know perhaps invites a different approach to thinking about minimum wage and minimum standards which is based on the sort of principle on the needs and works backwards rather than is it rather than rests on a sort of on the current legal definition of what an employee is um i would bat it i'd bat it on in this in this match to diane <laughs> well D- diane and i've got some other questions that i might want to put to you but do you have any um thoughts on that particular one um I don't think I've got anything particular to add. Just just a broader reflection, or, or maybe one, well, a broader reflection about um, the way that the labour market is pushing risks and responsibilities onto individuals. And, um, you know, w- workers are less able to bear those. And so whether it's saving for pension or investing in skills training or um, just covering themselves in hard times, um, the minimum wage is only one piece of the jigsaw to fixing all of that important. Um, thank you. I think I'm going to come back to some of the ideas around um, place now, which you, you focused on. Um, a question from CPP's own head of policy, Zoe Billingham. She asks around um, what conditions should places try to create locally to attract big, good employers to their region? And a related question in the, uh, in the audience also from Marianne Sensia. Where does the demand come f- from for new entrepreneurs when the town or city is in decline? So how, how, do, we, how do we try and build up these good employers at a place level that can both foster good jobs but also think about kind of new enterprising activity? Well, if we knew how to do this, we wouldn't have the problem. So there's no easy answer to this one. And it's about aligning lots of policies uh, at the same time and providing the leadership to get everybody um, 
aiming towards the same kind of goals and um, in consort. So part of it is exactly the points Martin raised earlier about uh, basic connectivity and uh, infrastructure and is that in place? And often the answer is no. Um, so all of the things about bus services into the local towns that you can get to work, that all matters and the airport matters. So there's all of that aspect of things. And, um, and then it's really the hard task of creating a virtuous circle of um, there being good jobs, people who've got money to spend on local services. So they, those small micro-scale entrepreneurs start, that the amenities are in place, that the local authorities have the money to provide decent services and the schools are good. And, um, you know, it's a kind of, it's hard because it is moving from the vicious circle that we've been in into the virtuous circle that we, we want to be in. Sometimes a big inward investment can make all the difference, but they're, they're few and far between, so not everybody is going to get those. So I think we're in for a long haul, and actually it's going to take a lot of both private and public investment, um, including in infrastructure, to get, to get this starting to work. Anna, Anna mentioned devolution, and I think that's worth emphasising, that where it works, it works very well. And I think if you take... Uh, I'm a big fan of... Greater Manchester. I mean, I like Manchester as a place. I was a governor of the Royal Northern College of Music for 10 years there. That was my connection. And what I observed was a very close cooperation between 11 boroughs, the Manchester City Council, the universities, the business sector, which included people like the property group called Bruntwood. Siemens had a big factory there, and the head of Siemens um, was was a very Jurgen Meyer was a very sort of leading figure in Manchester public life and so on. And you sensed a level of coordination that really worked. Um, and there's a big airport. There's a big industrial park around the airport. There's a science park. It's got all the ingredients, and that was through collaboration up in my part of the world, just to the north of me, the Tees Valley area. I mean, we're not making political points, but there's been rather a good elected mayor of the Tees Valley called Ben Hoochin, who I think is a, probably about to get re-elected. And I think people up there can really sense that the coordination that it, an elected mayor of a region with some proper powers can begin to pull the pieces together. So that, you know, that can work. I agree. It's easier to do the coordination locally than it is nationally. It's very hard to do that. And you, you can cross the policy side, it's much more easy. Yeah. And um, my colleague has just put um, a link to an event that we had with Lord Hesseltine on the future of devolution in, in the chat function there. We are um, devolution advocates here at CPP, so really great to, to hear those sentiments endorsed. Um, a question now to uh, open to anyone. Um, uh, Phoebe Brown's interested in hearing views on what the government can do to incentivise employers to spend more on training their employees. Can you take us to that one? I, Anna. I can add one point on that, um, which is that um, incentivising um, human expenditure on human, what economists would call human capital as well as physical ones should be uh, introduced. I mean, a lot of things should be done, but that's outstanding. That's, um, that's, that stands out to me. So, sorry, just to clarify, so in incentivising an array of measures that support development of human capital on yes. the part of employers? Yes. So employers get credits and, uh, um, and support 
for specifically linked to their ta- to tax um, or training, as in the same way that they do for physical infrastructure. Sorry, I wasn't clear. Got it. Got it. Diane. Well, for R and D, you get a big tax credit for R and D expenditures, and you don't for investing in people. And in fact, on the contrary, we tax labour more heavily than other kinds of expenditure by companies. Um, I mean, all I would say is that there have been some sort of infamous examples of where we've tried to incentivise employers and then they've gone horribly wrong and trained to gain is probably um, the, the flagship version of that. But yeah, if we can find other ways of doing it on capital infrastructure, there should be, in theory, no reason why we can't do it in, in this but way around. Schemes, that schemes are, are dangerous because they're exactly a magnet for cowboys, if you, as, as you've just described. Um, so I think um, Anna was referring to something more broad-based. Through the tax system. Through the tax system. Yeah. Um, question which, Diane, you might want to pick up on because um, uh, it refers to your valuing the ordinary. Robin Beveridge asks, um, how do we effectively achieve that, um, particularly when government is always chasing the new sexy sectors I was struck by Martin's comments earlier about how we've got to transition to a future economy based on what we have now rather than trying potentially, this is my interpretation, Martin, sort of um, expecting some of that inward investment or the kind of other um, lucky star to land from Japan or wherever else it might be. Diane, did you have any thoughts on how we might start to value the ordinary and think about job creation, high quality job creation in those sectors? Well, it would, for example, be thinking about um, something like the social care sector, where we know that demand is going to grow and that money will be tight. So why aren't we thinking about what investments are needed and what skills are needed among that large workforce? So rather than the model where they're paid, um, you know, possibly at best minimum wage, and a lot of it has been migrant labour, um, can we not think about um, skills and career structures and focus on increasing productivity in what's going to be an important and and growing part of the economy. Because we want the high-tech frontier in certain parts anyway, you know, not every country to do everything. Of course, we want to grow those and celebrate those. um, But but most of the economy isn't like that. And if we want to see productivity go up and incomes rise and uh, broad prosperity, then we need to think about productivity in pretty much everything that people do. And there's a, a kind of resignation to the fact that they're always going to be rubbish jobs and we'll have to live with this divergence in people's fortunes and status. And I don't buy that. I think you can think about creating um, much higher quality and higher skilled jobs in, in most parts of the economy. Can I add? Martin. Well, I certainly echo that point about the social care sector. What we probably have seen as a result of the pandemic is a there's a sort of changing of values. There's a revaluing by society of healthcare workers. We now value them in our minds, in our hearts, much higher perhaps than we did before. And we, that needs to somehow take in the social care sector as well. That involves cost elements that somehow will have to be paid for. But th- that is an area of what you, I think, were calling the ordinary that ought to be have a higher value placed on it. Something else is the sort of green revolution. Diane alluded to it very early on in her remarks. We haven't gone there very much. But there's a whole set of jobs in the in 
in-house building, in plumbing, in central heating systems, um, all kinds of things which are relatively, in our old-fashioned way of looking at it, low-level, low-valued jobs, but are very, very important if you really want to have a green revolution that goes through every aspect of, of life. So training people to do, as it were, green plumbing, uh, um, green house building would, would be enormously valuable. There's a great, sorry, go on, Diane. There's a great paper by Mansa Olson called Big Bills on the Sidewalk, where he talks about somebody who migrates from Haiti to New York. And although working in a cleaner, as a cleaner in both places immediately becomes much more productive. And that's because of the uh, different working environment and equipment. And I, I think we just need to um, open our minds really to the scope for value in ordinary jobs. Um, Anna, any final thoughts from you? Um, yeah, yes. On, on that question, I'd say that you include all sectors in your, whatever it is, whatever we end up calling it, our strategy work. Point five point zero as we're doing it. So you do that, um, not not never just the sort of high the high the sexy sectors. Um, we think harder about how we reward the key workers. Now we've realised they're so fundamental uh, to the economy and to society, to the pandemic. So a focus perhaps on that might help move the debate on. Um, and finally, we we present, we understand and we present the economic as well as the moral case for this, that sort of revaluing uh, human skills in the age of automation, so non-automatable skills, um, is the economically sensible thing to do, as well as the right thing to do. Wonderful. Well, I think I've just got one last question, which could be as simple as yes or no, but feel free to elaborate briefly. Do you think we'll use this moment, as we're coming out of furloughs, we're coming out of COVID, to really think about how we create a better, fairer, greener more inclusive, more productive labour market? Or do you think we will just sort of fall back and just be grateful that the numbers aren't too terrible and we'll just carry on as we were? Any takers for their yes or no? <laughs> um, well, perhaps I don't, I don't know if I, how strongly I believe this, but sometimes I think it's either we grab this moment, as you say, or it's revolution. <laughs> Ooh, okay, a warning shot from Diane there. Martin. Yeah, um, I think it's over optimistic to say we're going to grab it and, and, and emerge with a totally different employment system and, and scale of values. But I think it is, it is a big nudge um, in a positive direction, I hope. Uh, my last word I want to say is um, I just want to emphasize the value of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship. And if I could introduce anything into the system it would be teaching of entrepreneur skills to young people and to older people who want to change their careers and encouragement all forms of encouragement the state can give to entrepreneurs who are already there who are trying to grow their businesses because i think that small business small high growth businesses are where recovery will come from and where good examples can be set of employment of, of you know, uh, sustainability and so on. Fantastic. Anna, your thoughts? Yes, I think that we, um, I, th I think that we can and we should uh, stick very much focused as we are, and I know you are, Charlotte, on building back better and believe that it can happen and do everything we can to help it happen. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, um, my grandfather clock in this room is telling me that we, our time is up. Um, thank you so much for what's been a really wonderful hour of your time, panelists, Diane, Martin and Anna. Thank you so much to our audience. Um, a reminder that we have other public events um, uh, lined up for you, one on educational um, inequalities there that um, will touch on many of the issues that we've uh, spoken about today. We've got one on building back better and the comparisons between um, the way that the Biden administration is thinking about that concept and the way that Boris Johnson and the UK government is seeking to deliver the same sentiment um, and more besides. So please do sign up for our website and do join us in subsequent events. But leaves me just to say once again, thank you to our panelists and thank you for everyone for joining us this evening. Bye.